This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Please, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. I know it's not the most ideal to do a sermon series where you return to a passage every two months, but such is the case. I began, uh, if you recall, two months ago when I was here last, we started in 1 John, verses 1, 1 through 4, and we looked at that passage both morning and the afternoon, and I want to move on to verses 5 through 7 this morning. And just so you know, this is kind of what I'm doing as well in, in Roanoke. I've slowly going through, and I've only gotten to verses 5 to 7 in Roanoke as well, so I'm kind of on pace with them as well as uh, I preach this when I do what I call double duty, where I preach both in the morning and the, the, the evening in, in Trinity, so uh, you're getting that message. <laughs> what is interesting about this passage is that... <clears throat> I was very nearly distracted from what I think is the key element of this text because when I first started studying Greek, one of the first phrases I memorized in Greek was the phrase, Hatheos phos estin, God is light. You see it in verse 5 of 1 John. And that is a powerful, powerful phrase. In fact, that's why we sang the hymn that we just sang about Jesus being the light of the world. And for me, that became such an easy phrase to memorize in Greek and such a powerfully loaded theological phrase that as I came to this passage, I just assumed immediately, like a lightning bolt, that's where I need to spend all of my time and attention. And then as I was studying some others and meditating on the text and listening to some others who have preached this passage before, I realized that there, perhaps I overlooked what I now believe to be in a very vital component of this text. And that's the phrase that comes just before it in verse 5. It says, this is the message. Now that is a crucial phrase because when we consider Christianity, we understand that Christianity is a religion of a message. We call that message the good news of the gospel. It's a religion of a message, and this religion, Christianity, grows as that message is propagated and preached and promulgated. And as that message is propagated by particularly called men proclaiming that message, others are hearing that message and receiving that message and then accepting that message. Thus, Christianity expands. It expands based on a message Not again, as I alluded back to Matthew 16, not based on a man wearing a white cap. The church is built on a message. A message of a man, not Peter, but Christ. And so I'm drawn now to this passage of Scripture in 1 John, realizing that we need to zero in on this message if we are to understand what it is that God is like. And to even consider that in the context that we looked at, again, two months ago, I apologize for such a long delay, but the idea of a message, one that is disseminated, that's already been inferred in the context. If you go back to verse 1 of 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. And he talked about something that we have heard Then in verse 2, the life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare. There's a message of something that they've seen and heard and now they're declaring, they're bearing witness. Verse 3 again, that which we have seen and heard, we declare. The inference of a message is throughout the context here. And as it happens in 1 John 1, 1 1-4, the specifics of that message... Namely, the person and the natures, if you remember, we talk about the person and natures of the Son, the the mediator who brings life, eternal life, who brings us into fellowship with God the Father, with whom we have the fullness of joy. That was left assumed, but not necessarily stated. It's almost as if 
First John was written as if you had the gospel according to John right next to it. I think that's kind of what is happening here. That as you're reading First John, you're, you're called back to the gospel according to John to read about this, this son who is the mediator. But then we come to verse 5. And verse 5 brings us back to what that message is in a very short, simple thesis. In verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from Him. Now we're going to get a, not maybe not a detail, but a very simple explanation. That message that we've heard, the message that we've been declaring, the message that we've borne witness, what we've seen, what we've handled concerning the Word of Life, here's the message. And I want us to consider what that message means for us as saints and believers today. And if you're not a saint, if you're not a Christian, at least you're not publicly professing Christ, maybe you've not gone to the waters of baptism, maybe you've not... You've not committed your your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to consider what this message is for you as well. So let us look at verses 5 through 7 as we give this text our consideration this morning. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Let us ask for God's help this morning. God and Father, I confess my inadequacy and my great need to not only preach this passage, but preach it powerfully and correctly. Lord, as humans still with remaining sin, we have our minds so easily distracted. We have desires that creep into our thoughts that would turn us away from the God who is light. Lord, help us now as we consider Your Word that You would, you would manifest these truths to us and that we would, we would serve Christ and delight in Him all the more. May our, may our affections to Him be warmed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, just by way of context, I don't want to assume that we remember. I wouldn't remember after two months either. So I want to make sure we remember what we saw in verses 1 through 4, particularly in verses 1 through 4. John begins this letter by expressing how the apostles, which is why he's using the plural we, what, that, what they had seen, what they had touched, what they had con, uh, handled with their own hands concerning the word of life, referring to not just this one moment of time that they saw Jesus, but that they walked with Jesus. They were with Jesus in His incarnation, in His humanity. That this life, this word of life was manifested. They're bearing witness and they're declaring this. This is why they say in verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This was the express purpose that as you come into contact with the apostles, the apostles are thus delivering to us Jesus. And that's so vital because Jesus as the mediator is our way to God. And because we have fellowship with God, therefore we would have eternal or fullness of joy. Psalm 16.11 tells us that, and 1 John 1.4 tells us that, that we write to you that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We write this to you that your joy might be full. And so the, the access point there was that the way to have complete or fullness of joy was to have fellowship with the apostles, which sounds strange, but it's because we don't normally talk about that, but he says in verse 3 that you might also have fellowship with us that we might have fellowship with the apostles through the proclamating of the Word of God. It, this is a message. This is a religion of a message. And as we fellowship with the apostles, we fellowship with the Son, because their fellowship is with the Son. And as we fellowship with the Son, we have fellowship with God. And as we have fellowship with God, we have the fullness of joy. But then we come to verse 5, and we are given the message which was only alluded to in verses 1-4. through four. Which is interesting because here... It takes me, you know, minutes, not quite hours. We don't want to preach for an hour long necessarily, but week in and week out, we have pastors preaching that message where John can summarize it in three words in English. This is the message. So as we come to verse 5, I want to give 
some very brief headings if you're taking notes that you can write these down. I tried to alliterate them as best I could. So if they don't, uh, if the words don't match up so well with a thought, just know I tried really hard. But I want to begin, first of all, looking at the subject that is the message. The subject that is the message. In other words, I don't want to bypass this notion that this is the message as it begins in verse 5. That was my tendency, to go straight to the message itself, straight to the subject matter, the content of the message, and forget that what we are dealing with is a message. This is the message. The word here is angelia. If you know anything about Greek, that's very similar to the word angelos, where we get the word angel. An angel is simply a messenger. The angelos delivers the angelia, the message. This is the message. Now, this is an old Greek word. This is not... Uh, a word that is used later on. It's used in ancient Greek to uh, refer to anything like a, an announcement or a proclamation, but it could even be used of a command or an order. It could be used of announcing the coming of a dignitary uh, or an official delegate. By the time you get to the New Testament, it could refer to a royal decree, a divine revelation, a word from God that is to be preached. That is exactly what we have here in verse 5. This is the message. This is the message. But not only do we have, first of all, the subject that is the message, but secondly, we have the source of the message. And this is why it's so crucial that we come back to not the, 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 the content of the message, but the message itself. Where does this message come from? What is the source of the message? Look at verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him. Those two words are crucial that we latch hold of, that this message is from Christ. As a herald would report a message on behalf of the king, that was his job, not to invent a message, but to take the king's message and say, Hear ye, hear ye, the king has said. And proclaim that message. Proclaim, deliver the message of the king. This is what the apostles are doing. What we have seen, what we've grasped, what we've looked upon and and, and, and born witness, we're declaring to you the message as the king's emissaries, the apostles, are telling us that they have received a message and they've received it from Christ Himself. And He is the one sending the apostles on Christ's behalf. This is exactly what separated a, an apostle from every other ministry, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the apostles spoke on behalf of Christ. The words that they spoke were only the words of Christ. It is, a, it is to say that as the apostles spoke, it was as Christ Himself were speaking. If you have a Bible like mine, you have a red letter Bible. Sometimes we think that those red letters are more inspired than the black letters. No. If it came from an apostle, the apostle is speaking the message from Christ and therefore... This message is of divine origin. So the source of the message is from Christ. And then notice, thirdly, we see the, the sharing of the message. The sharing of the message, or we might call it the reporting. It says in verse 5, this is the message we have received, or we have heard, or even that we have preached. And then we declare it to you. Now I add in all those synonyms because... The word in Greek, having heard, it's not referring to simply an instance we heard it once and we moved on. Rather, it's connoting the idea of receiving a message, the reception of a message, perhaps even a tradition, a, a body of doctrine that is to be shared with the church. It's a, it's a state of hearing. Well, how do you have a state of hearing? Well, it's a state of hearing in that you've received a message from God indicating a reception of a tradition that's to be passed down. Now, if we're careful, that could sound very Roman Catholic. But we need to understand that the apostles themselves tell us that they've been passing on the body of doctrine, the, the system of faith that has been handed down from them, uh, uh, to them from Christ Himself. Paul himself will use this language in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren... Stand fast and hold the traditions which you, were, which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so here the message in 1 John, it's a message from Christ and it's a message proclaimed by the apostles. And if that is the case, 
then it likewise continues the notion that that very same message is to be heralded weekly in the community of faith and the gathering of the saints on a regular basis where you are to receive it. I spend all week receiving the message in my study that I might deliver it to you that we might receive from God this message. And again, what is remarkable is that John here, by the inspiration of uh, of the Holy Spirit, can summarize this message in three words. God is light. But as pastors, we have the weekly task of unpacking that message and manifesting it and all the ramifications that go with it to the saints. And so we've seen the subject that is the message, the source of the message, the sharing of the message, but now we come forthly to the substance of the message. And this is where we'll take most of our time. The substance of the message, that is, God is light in verse 5. Now, before we even consider the, the, the substance and its profound meaning, we need to first consider that the, the substance of the message is emphatically stated. It's not as if he says God is light and moves on. That John makes sure that we hear, we can even feel the emphasis behind it. Look at verse 5 again. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Sorry, I had to get rid of that. There is emphasis here. He is stating this emphatically. And I want to briefly explain to you how I'm arriving at this. Because the first clause, God is light, is just a simple assertion. At least simple grammatically. It's loaded with meaning that we're going to have to unpack. But then it's followed by another clause. He could have left it, God is light. That's the message. But he follows it up with a second clause, and this time he gives the negative side of things. Here's the positive, God is light, and here's the negative. What is the negative? There is no darkness in him. To repeat something and then to repeat it in the negative is to complete the idea in such a way that we don't miss anything. And if that weren't enough, we kind of miss it in our English translations, but most modern translations will add that expression, at all. Again, in verse 5 at the end, in him is no darkness at all, the New King James says. Now, that's not exactly a literal translation. We might translate it literally, in him there is no darkness, none. We might uh, contextualize it in our modern day way of saying, saying it and saying, in him there is no darkness, zero. Nada. Zilch. And so even in his, in his emphatic second clause, he brings it out even more emphatically. That in case you didn't get it the first time, God is light, you'll get it the second time. There is no darkness in Him. And if that wasn't enough, he says, exclamation point, none. In other words, brethren, whatever the substance of the message is here, our minds, our thoughts, our eyes, our ears should be drawn to this profound message. And that brings us then to the substance of the message, profound in its meaning. Profound in its meaning. What is the meaning of God is light? Now, I want to offer you four possibilities, and I'll argue for one of them. But the ideas of light in the Bible are are many, and four very prominent and possible ideas here. That God is light might mean that God is one who illuminates, reveals, This is a a use of light in the Bible. Another possibility is that this is referring to God as the source of life. If you go back to the prologue of John's Gospel account in John 1, you'll see that in Him was the life, and that life was the light of men. I think it's John 1.5, if memory serves. Then there's also the notion of God's glory manifesting in light, speaking of God's beauty, the splendor, the majesty of God's glory could be a possibility here. And lastly, there is this notion of God's moral purity. In Him is no darkness, none at all. Now, of all these four, again, they're all used throughout Scripture. and In fact, the Apostle John uses them as well. And so it's not as if uh, when interpreters latch on to one of these four that they're just grasping at the wind. But I want to argue that here, God is light. In Him is no darkness, none at all is a reference to a statement of God's moral purity. 
I want to give you an emphasis of why that is, or reasons why I believe that is to be the case. First of all, I'm going to strike out the other reasons why I don't believe, first of all, light refers to illumination. While that is true, I don't think that's the subject matter that John is taking up. This is not the message that God illuminates and reveals. That's a doctrine that is asserted throughout Scripture, but that's not the message here. Why do I say that? Well, you wouldn't say it with a negative phrase, an emphatic phrase following up. You wouldn't say God is a God who illuminates because there is no darkness in Him. You wouldn't say it that way. You wouldn't say He's a God who reveals Himself by saying that there is no darkness in Him whatsoever. That doesn't fit. Secondly, I don't believe that God is light refers to the magnificence or the beauty or the splendor of God here, though that is certainly a true statement, that God's splendor and magnificence is displayed in light. But light here must comport not only with the metaphor of light and darkness, but it also must must coincide with the metaphor that's used and expanded along with the idea of humans walking in darkness rather than walking in light. What would it mean for a human to walk in the the light of God's beauty versus walking in the darkness of, of, of ugliness? That doesn't seem to be the metaphor. That doesn't seem to be the thrust of verses 6 and 7. To walk in darkness doesn't necessarily mean that we walk in the ugliness of the world versus the beauty and splendor of God. It seems to have a different picture in mind. Likewise, I don't believe that light refers to God as the source of life. Again, that is true of other places in Scripture, but here... I don't think that's the metaphor. And one of the reasons I would argue that the moral purity fits the best with not just the context, but even later in chapter 2. Why the source of light view doesn't make sense. If you go to verse 8 of chapter 2. Verse 8 says, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you before, or excuse me, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is not about the source of life. He who says he is in the light, and notice the issue is an issue of morality, and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother, love, brethren, is the fulfillment of the law. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. It seems here that that light and darkness is a reference to walking in righteousness versus walking in sin. And so I would say that there is good reason to take this expression in verse 5, God is light, as an expression of God's moral purity. And we see this throughout the the, the Bible. I'll, I'll read you some passages. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Isaiah 5.20 Romans 13.12 says this, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore... Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, given in the context of the fulfillment of the law being love. Ephesians 5.8 for, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. One more, 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So there does seem to be this this component of righteousness, that God is light. So what do we mean when we say that this is the message that God is light? What do we mean when we say that God is light in a morally pure sense? Here's what we mean. That light is not what God has. Light is who God is. He doesn't have light. He is light. His essence is light. And in Him, because He is light, there is no impurity. There is no sin. There is no imperfection. There is no evil. There is no wickedness. There is no transgression. There is only holiness. God is only holiness and He is only surrounded by purity. We serve a morally perfect God who Himself is the standard of morality and perfection, as we'll talk about later. Why is that the message? It's what He says. This is the message. God is light. Why is that the message? Because I guarantee you, you go to most churches around here, they would say that the message is later on in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8, God is... Love. 
Why is that the message that our world has latched onto and neglected this central message that God is light? Brother, I would submit to you that before we preach a God of love, which is a treasured message that we don't want to neglect, but before we preach that God is a God of love, or even that God is a God of justice, we must first begin with a God who is light. There is no good news of a God of love if there is not first established that great foundational truth that God is light and in Him there is no darkness, none at all. Now that will have tremendous impact as we un, uh, unravel the theology behind that. But before we do, I want to give the fifth point here. And this is where my, my uh, alliterating with the S's really fails. So please grant me some charity here. Fifthly, we see the sway of the message. What is this message supposed to do in terms of application? How is it supposed to move us? The sway of the message. We see in verses 6 and 7, this is the practical use. When we hear the message that God is light, what are we, saints, to do with that? Now, this text actually extends to verse 10, and we could even go beyond chapter 2 for all of the context here. But I'm going to restrict it just to just verses 6 and 7 for now. And the, the, the sway, the movement, what this, what this message is to do for us, is to say that if God is light, He is pure, then we who have fellowship with God, and we'll have to talk about what does fellowship mean, but we who commune in near proximity with God, we must also walk in light in order to commune closely with God. Look at verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And I'm, there I would take one another, not to be together here, but vertically. We have fellowship with Christ, one another. We have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, because God is light, we must swim in the same current as God. We must walk in the light as He is in the light. In other words, if God is light, we must cut in the same grain as God because He is light. If we walk in the darkness, that's to cut against the grain. Verse 6 is the negative side here. Verse 6 tells us what it means to lie and to walk in darkness. And it uses the expression of fellowship. If we say that we have fellowship, what is fellowship? could be simply to commune closely, not just to have a relationship, but to have a tight-knit relationship. Our confession in the uh, chapter on, on justification talks about though we sin, we don't lose our justification, but we can bring about God's fatherly displeasure. I would take communion here, our fellowship with God, to be that fatherly pleasure. That the more we are righteous, the more the saints are living according to God's law, the more that we are treasuring God and walking in His holiness, walking in the light, we have this fatherly pleasure, this, this nearness, that intimacy. Not that our relationship could ever be ruptured, but we are closer with God. We are in the warmth of Christ. And so walking in darkness, one cannot have close communion with one who is light. Because when you're around light, it dispels the darkness. And so our walk must be consistent with our confession. Our walk must be consistent with our profession. Notice it says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God, who is light, but we walk in darkness, we tell a lie. Our walk must be consistent with our profession of faith, our confession. But then verse 7, we have the positive side. That if we walk in purity, if we walk in righteousness, then we commune closely with the One whose essence is light, whose essence is purity. As Christians walk in the light together, we also have fellowship with Christ Himself. We have constant access to the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Oh, that's good news, isn't it, brethren? 
That when we walk in the light, even when we sin, we cling to the One who is light. We plead the Gospel. We don't plead our merits. We don't plead the the merits of saints or anything like that. We plead Christ. And we're brought back into that close, fatherly pleasure. This is the pathway to fullness of joy. Is that not what we've been talking about in verse 4? We write these things that you might have the fullness of joy. How do you have fullness of joy? By having fellowship with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's so crucial that we walk in the light that we might have fellowship. That is the sway of the message here, that it would lead us to realize, Christians, we need to seek righteousness. Not as a way to earn righteousness, just as a son does not earn the status of son with a father, but certainly that fatherly pleasure can be displayed as the son submits to and obeys his father. I feel like I'm going to go the very uh, Puritan-style sermon here. I've tried to unpack the text. Now I want to give some theology, some some doctrinal matters that will undergird our application. First of all, as we take up this idea that God is light, as God is light, then we would say that God, not man, it is God who determines the standard of fellowship. It is God who determines the standard of fellowship in order for us to commune with God. This is the message. That God is light. We don't get to determine what is light. We don't get to determine what will bring fellowship with God. The moment that fellowship with God is determined based on human criteria, the the moment we think, well, we can have fellowship with God even if we do this. The world says this is okay, so it must be okay. We can have fellowship with God. The moment we give in to the human criteria of what it means to have fellowship with God is the, the moment we start playing lawgiver. When we play lawgiver, brethren, we're playing God. Only God gives the law. And so as we submit to God's revelation of Himself, not creating a version of Him out of our own desires, neither can we invent our own ways and our own standards for us to have fellowship with Him, to commune with Him. This is, please hear me, brethren, this is the great danger of the tendency of the church in liberalism. This is exactly what the liberal churches will do thinking that they'll be wise in order to win many. It's alright, everyone's got the same issue. Is that an Amber Alert? Weather Alert. Okay. Okay. Keep an eye on that, please. If we need to go to the basement, we have one. Okay. Let's come back now. The danger, the tendency of liberalism is that they think that they can be wise to win more, to grow more. We can replace God's standards for fellowship with the culture standards. This is exactly what they do. What do we see the world want? What do, they see the, what do we see the world like? Well, I know we'll bring that into the church. And we end up thinking that we can have fellowship with God though we're walking in darkness. Brother, this is why it's so vital that we understand that it is God who is light, therefore it is God who determines the standard of fellowship. Secondly, I want you to consider from a doctrinal point of view that as God is light, this is who He is. Notice it doesn't say God has light. It says God is light. Later, the text will say God is love. Not that God has love, but that is His essence. It is who He is. God is love and God is light. And so it's not as if God's standard for fellowship is arbitrarily chosen. It's not like God is saying, well, I think I'll make this the fellowship standard. Or, how about that? Or, you know, I'll just, you know, pull a, uh, you know, go for the short straw. God is not arbitrarily or at random choosing what will be the standard for fellowship. Rather, God's standards for fellowship is based upon Himself. That if God determines the standards, we need to understand that these standards are founded upon God's very character. God who is light. 
They're not arbitrarily chosen, but they're consistent with the very nature of God Himself. This is, this is crucial we understand that the Ten Commandments are not ten random ideas from God thinking that would be a good idea. The Ten Commandments are so because of who God is. Example, why is it wrong to tell a lie? Because God is truth. God is light. In Him there is no darkness. Why is it wrong to steal? Because God is the one who owns everything and has granted possession to His people. To go against, to go against truth or to go against possessions is to go against God's very nature. Why is it wrong to commit adultery? Because God is a God of faithfulness. Why is it wrong to kill? Because God is a God of life. See what I mean here? The Ten Commandments are built on who God is. He's not arbitrarily selecting, here's how you have fellowship with me. Um, let's say that or that. No! God is light. We submit to His essence of who He is. Imagine fellowship with God would be like tuning into an old radio. For those of you who are younger than me, there are things called radios. They used to play music or news. And even before my time, they were not digital. They were analog. You had to turn a dial to get the arrow just right to get it on the perfect radio frequency. If you were off just slightly, there would be feedback and static and you couldn't get it. You had to turn, tune in. You had to turn the dial just right. Sometimes we might think of God's standards of fellowship as just arbitrarily chosen. You know, this, this frequency, you've got to find it. God has not done that. The, the frequency of fellowship here is based on who God is. And that is, we don't dial in to whatever frequency God has chosen at random. When we walk in light, we are, we are, we are dialing into the frequency of God Himself, who is light. That we find that radio wave in the law of God. And it's not analog, it is digital, it's precise. You find that Ten Commandment frequency and you hone in on it. That's the essence here of, of verses 6 and 7, that our confession of fellowship has to be consistent with a God who is light, that we have to walk in light because we have to be consistent with a God who is light. And light dispels darkness. And so if we were to think of this by way of application then, brethren... Fellowship with God makes requirements of Christians. Fellowship with God makes requirements of Christians, and I'll give you some. Fellowship with God requires righteousness. That is to say that it is a fool's errand who believes he can walk closely with God while at the same time walking closely with sin. Let me say that again because sometimes this, this, this seems so obvious. And yet it's so profound. It is a fool's errand. He who believes he can walk closely with God while at the same time walking closely with sin. When Pastor Atkins and I do our pastoral oversights, when we meet with the brethren in the church, the first question we ask them is this. And it's, we, we try to change it somewhat, but essentially we're asking, what are your affections for Christ like right now? How are your affections for Christ. Don't, don't give me the, the specifics. Don't tell me about, you know, I'm doing this in my devotions or this and just, what are your affections? In other words, what we're asking is, what is your communion with Christ? Are you in that close communion with God? Are you feeling that fatherly pleasure? Or do you feel a distance? Many times we do hear in our time of oversight that, that there is a spell of coldness. We feel cold. We feel distant. Or we feel God is distant from us or me. And this leads us to ask the prompt. Not that it means this, but at least could indicate that, brethren, if you feel a distance from Him, if there is a, a coldness with God... Could it be, I'm not saying it must be, there are other reasons that it could be, but possibly could it be that you were walking in darkness, toying with sin? I'm not saying that could, that, that is absolutely the reason. There are other reasons why we might feel a distance. But it could very well be the, the matter that you're walking in darkness, though you're, you're confessing to be walking in light. 
And if that is the case, dear brethren, this is not a message of discouragement. This is one of consolation because right after verse 6, if we say we have fellowship but we walk in darkness, we lie. Right after verse 6 is verse 9. It's in the context. It's almost as if we're expected that our remaining sin is going to bring about those times, those occasions where we do venture back into darkness. Oh, dear Christian, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, God who is light is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Why? Because God is light. And verse 7 tells us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. Brethren, the moment you feel like you are walking in darkness, the moment you feel that there is a distance, a coldness between you and your Father, is the moment you flee to Christ, you confess your sin, and you plead the blood of the Lamb. You don't work harder. Maybe I can force it. Maybe I can merit it. Maybe I can earn it. Our fellowship requires righteousness with God, and therefore, when we sin, we must confess it. We confess the sin and we seek God's forgiveness. We seek God's fatherly pleasure. To have that fatherly displeasure removed. It's so vital for us as we are restored back to that close communion with God. And the good news, Christian, is that Christ has purchased that restoration and He's done it with His own blood. He has won His Father's pleasure. His eternal pleasure for us that we might enjoy it now. That we might have fellowship with Him now. So, brethren, be quick. As we, as we are required to pursue righteousness, be quick to confess sin. Don't hold on to it. Don't try to justify it. Be quick to confess sin. Be quick to seek God. And maybe even more than that, do battle with your sin. Treat it like a serpent and cut off its head. Pray to God that you would take up the gospel weapons of warfare and you would do battle with your sin. Those weapons that Christ bought by His own blood purchased for you on the cross that you would wield the weapons of faith. What are they? Well, read Ephesians 6 and put on the whole armor of God. Take up those weapons and you attack your sin. Because fellowship with God requires righteousness. But secondly, fellowship with God requires a righteousness that is consistent with the One who defines what that righteousness is. That's a mouthful. In other words, we don't get to say what is righteous and what is not righteous. We have to submit to God's Word and God's law. Which is to say, take up, brethren, and read. Take up and study. Meditate on God's law. Day and night if needs be. Make it your delight. Memorize Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor stands in the way of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Why? Because God is light. That is the message. And if we want to know this God who is light, if we want to have fellowship with this God who is light, we come to His law. Not to earn salvation, but to walk consistently with the God who does save. And so God's standard for fellowship is God Himself, God's character. We need to understand His law. We need to meditate on His law because when we meditate on God's law, we meditate on God Himself. Thirdly, fellowship with God requires truth and it has no place for hypocrisy. Fellowship with God requires truth and has no place for hypocrisy. That is the main issue in verses 6 and 7, is it not? If we say one thing, but our profession of faith says something else. That this is the message preached. God is light. We profess to be the children of God. True believers are children of light, the Bible says, and yet we walk in darkness. Is that not what hypocrisy is? To say one thing, but to act another? It's all about the confession that we ourselves are proclaiming, whether in word or deed, we proclaim. That's why in verse 6, if we say one thing, but we walk consistently in darkness, that's why verse 7 assumes the positive. If we, if we say that we walk in light, 
And then verse 7, we actually walk in the light. As He is in the light, we have that fellowship. The matter of truth rather than hypocrisy. This is going to be a theme that's going to be taken up again in chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, 19 talks about those hypocrites who eventually will go out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. Or they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Those true hypocrites will leave. Because fellowship with God requires truth and it has no place for hypocrisy. And so now we simply raise the issue of hypocrisy. Let me ask you, is your profession... And I don't just mean every time you say, I'm a Christian... Your profession begins at baptism. Is your profession of faith by baptism? Is your profession of faith every time your neighbors see you getting in your cars, going to worship on the Lord's Day? Is your profession of faith, however you identify yourself as a Christian, is your profession of faith consistent with the God who is light? Some simple questions we might ask. Do you laugh at jokes at work that would not even be uttered here? Do you watch things on TV or on your cell phone? Do you read things in magazines or in books that would be condemned from the pulpit here? Do you speak in such a way Monday through Saturday that is night and day different than you do on Sunday? Fellowship with God has no place for hypocrisy. If we say that we have fellowship with Him who is light but walk in darkness, we're telling a lie. And lastly, I conclude that fellowship with God requires turning from darkness. Fellowship with God requires turning from darkness. I want to take up John three nineteen through 21 now. We'll conclude with this. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you may. John 3, verses 19 through 21. I told you the Apostle John picks up this theme of light and darkness throughout his writings. John three nineteen says this, This is the condemnation. This is the judgment. This is the the judge's declaration of condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light so that His deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Here we see again, this is, this is that three-word message expanded upon in John 3, that God is light. And God has sent His Son, as we sang about earlier, He is the light of the world. And He sent His Son into the world as the light of the world so that sinners might be saved from the darkness from the evil and wickedness of their sin. That to have fellowship with God requires turning from darkness. And right now, there might be some of you, maybe a young child, maybe a teenager, maybe an adult, that you are rebelling and running from the light knowing that you love darkness. You don't want to give up the darkness. You don't want to give up the the enjoyment that you have in sin. Or maybe you don't want to turn to the light because you know, you know that the light will expose your darkness. Maybe you've interacted with pornography. Maybe you've had an affair. You've said lies and you've, you've stolen. Whatever it is, you don't want that to be exposed so you stay in the darkness. And this text, Jesus Himself is telling us, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not turn and come to light because your deeds would be exposed. But right now, as a, as a proclamation of the Word of God, this is the message that God is light and He's calling you to the light. And that you would not, that you, that you would not rebel, but that you would run and that you would flee to Christ. That you would, that you would run to the light. That though you love your sin, though you fear it would be exposed, you would look at all the other saints in here and, and ask them this question. How many of us in here who have been exposed by the lights regret it? 
Is there one Christian in here who has confessed, I was in darkness, but I've come out of that because of Christ? Look at my sins on display. Look what Christ has done to save me from this. There's not one Christian who regrets having their sin exposed. Don't regret it. Don't fear it. Simply run. Don't rebel. Don't love your hate. hate or don't hate your, your, your darkness, but love the light. Run to Christ. We who have come to light, we know that this is good. We have come to the truth. We've come to the light. We've come to the God who is light because this is the message. To have fullness of joy is not to stay in your sin. It's to confess your sin. To have fullness of joy is not to, to, to have fellowship with darkness. It's to flee darkness and to run to Christ. So please, hear me. If you're a young child or the age of adult, if you're holding on to your sin, holding on to darkness, let it go. Verse 21 says, He who does the truth comes to the light. Are you coming to the light? As it looks like all outside is dark right now because of the storm, are you fleeing to Christ? Because in Him is light. There is no darkness. None whatsoever. Salvation is only to be found in the God who is light. May you find Christ to be the light of the world and save you. Let us pray. Our Lord, we confess we are all in need of a Savior. And by profession, whether by baptism or other means, we have professed, many of us, that we have, we have put our faith in Christ. We are professing that we are walking in the light. And though there are times where we, in our remaining sin, stumble and fall, yet we have Christ to cleanse us. But Lord, if there are sinners here not looking to Christ to save them, loving their darkness rather than the light, Lord, we would pray that You would change their heart. Grant them repentance that they might turn from their sin, not fear that their darkness would be exposed, that they would relish in the light, the purity of God, that they might have fellowship with God and thus have fullness of joy. Lord, as we're about to take of the Lord's Supper, we would ask that You would be pleased to work mightily among Your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.